Welcome to Unspoken, the podcast that highlights experiences that are all too common but very rarely discussed. I am Dr. Cloda Campbell, the wellness psychologist, and I feel very passionately about speaking the unspoken to remove the taboo and shame that so often surrounds our experiences and internal worlds. For each episode of Unspoken, I am joined by someone who would like to uncover their unspoken with us in order to help themselves, but also in order to help others. I really hope that you enjoy today's episode and that you take something from it. Today's podcast is very kindly sponsored by Oh Lovely. Oh Lovely is a beautiful Irish company built on belief, the belief that you can be anything and everything you wish to be. All Oh Lovely candles and diffusers contain crystals and gemstones to increase energy and to power your beliefs. So whether you're taking some well-earned me time, pausing to reflect and reconnect, or sending positive thoughts to loved ones, Oh Lovely positive affirmation candles make the perfect gift. Oh Lovely have very kindly offered Unspoken listeners 20% off site-wide when using code UNSPOKEN. Today, I am very grateful to be joined by Laura, who has bravely agreed to share her Unspoken with us. Laura's story focuses on the mental and emotional struggles she experienced following the birth of her first child, which ultimately led to her being admitted to mental health inpatient hospital care, something that is hugely unspoken about and that is often a very taboo topic. Laura shares with us how incredibly difficult this experience was for her, especially due to being separated from her baby, and how, by choosing life, she went on to survive her darkest days. Laura's story is incredibly inspiring and one that I have no doubt you will be glued to just as I was. Laura, welcome to Unspoken. So I'd really love to go back to where this experience began for you. To kind of put the starting point, I was at the peak of my marketing career. I had worked over 17 years to get there. I had just got married. Like life was really good. I was very lucky. I got pregnant quite quickly and I was really just excited about becoming a mum because everything I'd heard about it was it's going to be the best time of your life. It's going to be amazing. So luckily I had a relatively straightforward pregnancy. I had a few complications and then I remember the day I went into labor with my little boy, Leo, who I suppose it's important to say the little baby we're talking about is now a little boy. He's six and a half years old. So that's where we're going back to. And yeah, like I remember going into labor and like from a physical perspective, that all went relatively okay. (laughs) And I just remember him being born and I'm handing him to me. And it's like a light switch just went off. It was like, this doesn't feel how they told me it would feel. They told me there'd be a gush of love. They told me I'd feel all of these things. And all I feel is absolute fear. I don't know how to hold him. I don't know what to do with him. So that was kind of the starting point. And my time in hospital was just spent bawling, crying. First of all, I couldn't breastfeed. And instead of being offered support, it was immense pressure to do it. And I remember leaving hospital and it was the most terrifying day of my life. I remember my husband and I, he was parking near, I think, Marion Square. And we were just running out to the car with this screaming baby. And I just literally thought... What have I done? And the weeks that followed, I can't describe them, but it was like, why is this so hard? Why would anyone do this? This, this, 
feels so, so hard. And at the time I didn't know it, but Leo was crying 24 seven. And we later found out when he was three months old that he actually had severe silent reflux. And anyone that's listening to this now and knows what that is, as a parent, their stomach is probably flipping. But essentially he cried 24 seven. He couldn't drink milk. He was in severe pain. And like that, I was just told for three months, every baby cries, you're just not winding him right. So it was this sort of, from the start, this seeking help and no one would help us. So I became obsessed with helping Leo. And while I knew something wasn't right with me, I was just focused on getting him help. So it's almost like I neglected my needs thinking I'll get help when. And really like to fast forward, that help came in the form when he was 10 months old. And when he was about six or seven months old, I can't remember exactly, I started screaming for help to every GP, nurse, any professional I could get in front of. And you have to remember at the time, I had been studying for my master's in psychology. I had taken a break. I had been volunteering with a mental health charity. So I was someone who, like you think, was best placed to find support. And I couldn't get it. And it had just got to a point where I was like, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. I'll just get through today. And really the defining moment was, it was one Sunday morning. And Leo and I were alone. And I remember this particular morning Not that the logical part went, but I started to think, oh, well, maybe, I suppose, maybe I started exploring. And that frightened me. I'm screaming for help. I feel so alone. Why is my journey as a mom different to everyone else's? Why is this so hard? Like every day would feel like, every hour would feel like a day. And and that's the way I described it. How do I do this? I have a really sick child. Like he was in and out of hospital. And even when we were seeking help from hospital, we weren't getting it. I remember being in one of the children's hospitals in Dublin He had stopped breathing one day because he was in so much pain and I rushed him in. And even in that hospital, they were like, but he doesn't have reflux. He's not vomiting. And they didn't know the difference between it. And I just was like, nobody's going to help us. Nobody's going to help me and nobody's going to help him. So I wouldn't say it was going to a place of ending it, but it was moving from logical to unlogical. And that's what scared me because I could never connect with someone that I thought maybe had a suicidal thought And it was very close to heading that way. And I just had this feeling of, I am going to ask for help one more time. And I don't know, can I do it anymore? And it was a Sunday morning. And bear in mind, I was one of the first people in my group of friends to have a baby. So if you think back to a Sunday morning, like in your late 20s, early 30s, everyone was asleep. And I was like, who will I ring? Because I, first of all, I need this person to pick up and I need them to help me. Like, who would you ring? Who would you ring? So I rang my really best friend, Claire, and to this day, she says she just had a gut feeling and she picked up and she just said, Laura, what's wrong? And I was like, Claire, I'm not okay." And she was like, where's Leo? Is he safe? And when you said to her, I'm not okay," what did that mean? I just was like, I can't go through another day of this. And I, I like I know that's such a blase answer. I don't really fully know what it meant in what would have happened if she didn't help me. But I just knew I couldn't ask for help anymore. I was at the stage of, like, it's hard to put words in it. Like, think of your worst nightmare. Like, I can still feel it in my stomach. I kind of describe it as physically. It was like, you know, when you get something happens, you get either a massive fright or you get bad news. And that feeling you get of dread. I felt like that for 10 months straight. Just this is too hard. Like this is, it was a mixture of feeling alone, feeling angry, feeling scared, 
and just the anger was building and why is nobody helping me? That's mm-hmm. all I could remember is why is nobody helping me? Mm-hmm. Why are we the only ones? Why am I the only mother that feels like this? And the, the shame that went with that, because again, I was told motherhood would be amazing. Here I was with a really sick child screaming for help. My husband and I screaming for help and no one would help us. And yet I suppose searching externally, is there anyone else feeling like this? And I couldn't see it because Mm -hmm. everything I could see was happy mums and I wasn't happy, Mm -hmm. you know? So you mentioned fear there. What was that fear that was really present for you in your stomach? What was that related to? Just am I ever going to feel normal again? Am I ever going to feel happy? Am I ever going to wake up and not feel physically sick Mm. to the point where, and I think this is really key, like to even lift the duvet off and get up and function for the day. That was like climbing a mountain. And that just happened every single day over and over and over again. And the fear was there because nobody was giving me hope that we'll help you. There's help there. This this is why you're feeling like this. This is valid. There was nobody doing that for me, despite screaming for it. What do you think was happening for you then every morning as you were pulling back the duvet? I didn't feel, how do I put it? I didn't feel sad. I didn't feel down. I didn't feel low energy. I was nearly the opposite. I had become obsessed with getting him better because in my mind, if I can get him better, then I can take care of myself because I was very aware I was feeling unwell. But like, I don't know how to describe it, only it was like, how would you think about a day that you're dreading? Like something that you've really dreaded or a day that you really don't want to face. And you kind of think in your head, I'll just get through this part of it. I never got through that part of it. It was just like Groundhog Day over and over again of just, I can't do this. I can't face this again. I don't know how to actually get through the day. It feels so hard. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was almost, I was nearly the opposite of low energy and low mood. It was almost, I was becoming hyper-focused on how can I fix this? And because I couldn't fix it and because no one was helping me, I was getting more and more angry. And because I couldn't see anyone that looked like me, I then was becoming more like there's something very wrong here because you're not enjoying this and you should be. Despite, even as I'm describing it now, that sounds so strange because I'd such a sick little boy. So it wasn't your typical journey, but I didn't have anyone else to look at to mirror that against. And I think Mm -hmm. if I had, it might've, the hardest part was I felt alone and I felt there was something deeply wrong with me for not being able to mind him and do this right. Mm -hmm. And actually... I can really relate to what you're saying. Yeah. Because my younger daughter had reflux too. Yeah. And I remember it was the build up to Christmas. She was about three months old and I rang my mom and I said, I need you. I need you to come to me today because I felt like I was falling apart. Yeah. So I can really relate to those words. And for me, we weren't, we weren't sleeping. She wasn't eating. And I just felt like I'm failing as a mom. Yep. I'm failing as a mom and I don't know what to do. So I rang my mom. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah so. And now, and can you imagine if your mom didn't come? Yeah. And you were shouting, no, sorry. And to say that clear, my mom was a great support, by the way. She came as much as she could. But yeah. imagine if you were shouting for that help every day and nobody came. I can't. 
I can't even begin to imagine because it felt like I was about to collapse yep. in that moment. So yep. I can really relate to where you were at as you described that to me. Yeah. And that's yeah. a, a horrible place to be and in. It's, it's really hard to put a word on it because there's nothing else you can compare it to. Mm. That's the way I look at it. I never, prior to, to this, I never really experienced any hardship in my life. And this was the first, like a train wreck hardship and I could it's like a tsunami wave came for me mm. and I could not get up for air I felt like I was suffocating and no matter how much I pedaled and pedaled or splashed I couldn't and it's like I was shouting to everyone around me like I'm drowning literally drowning and they were like oh you're okay you're grand it's fine and it wasn't fine. it wasn't fine and I knew I suppose the morning I rang Claire I knew I just couldn't paddle anymore and I didn't know what that meant for me but it was like, I can't keep paddling here. Somebody like has to see that I'm drowning. Yeah. Somebody has to give me a life raft because it's going to pull me under. And it, it, it was just the scariest call to make to her because she just knew like your yeah. best friend just knows I didn't have to say much. And basically she was like, leave it with me. So basically Claire rang me back and was like, this is the situation, Laura we are going to try and get you into a psychiatric hospital, but as a day patient, right? So this is key. And I was like, great, well, we do, that's fine. And when she said that to you, how was it to hear those words? We are going to get you support from a, you know, a care facility. This is the thing. At the time, if she had told me, we need to put you naked on Grafton Street for a day and that's going to make you feel better, I would have been like, grand. Didn't shock me because I was thinking at the time, psychiatric hospital, day patient, I'm just going to go in and meet with a really good psychologist or psychiatrist. They're going to have a chat with me and I'll come home again. That's what I was thinking, mm. right? So the next day, Brendan and I and Leo went into the GP, requested to be referred in. And she was even a bit, I think, taken aback by what we were saying. And she rang later that day, and I don't know if this was a strategy on her part or what it was, but I'm laughing. This really isn't funny. It's just a nervous. And she was like, I can get you in there, but are you willing to sleep there for a night or two? Right. And I said, great, I'm exhausted. Let's do it. Right. That's like any mother's dream. <laughs> yeah. Like, for a night. <laughs> and this is what sounds so like I wasn't thinking I'm going away here for a while. I was like, I'm going to go in there for a night or two. I almost thought like I'm cheating the system here. Mm. So then the, the day came to go and this is where it hit me. So my mom and dad came up and they like Leo, I think was about 10 months old at the time. And they were like, we're going to take him for a walk while you get ready to go. And I think this is, this is really where it hit me because he started crying for me as a baby does. And he put his arms out. <sighs> and like, <laughs> I couldn't take him. Mm. I literally in that moment, it was like, and it's funny, this is the part that always gets me. It was like, you have to take him. And like, they just left. And in that moment, it was sort of a moment of, right, Laura, you have to get better. Like, you have to do whatever they say because you can't be his mom right now because like, you're really unwell. So they took him off for a walk. And this is this is kind of where it gets ironic. My husband and I walked to that. 
a hospital and we went for coffee beforehand. This is why this is going to sound so strange, even though it was such a serious moment. And we were in a coffee shop and I was like, wow, for the first time since we became parents, we're alone having a date and you're about to check your wife into a psychiatric hospital. It was just the irony of it. And then we landed in the hospital and like, I had no idea. Like I literally thought padded cells, they're going to lock me up. I, I had no idea. And we checked in and it literally is a check-in process. And I just remember saying, can I leave at any moment? And they were like, yes, you can. I later learned it's not that straightforward. Why did you ask that question? Because I wanted control. I had a fear. I, I, had, I didn't know what was going to happen when they put me upstairs. I thought I was going to be put into a locked room, locked in, and I needed to know I could leave at any point. Because remember, I was still in the frame of mind. I'm only coming here for a few days. Mm. I'm cheating the system. I'm skipping whatever cue I had in my head. Mm. And I needed to know if they didn't deliver on that promise, I could leave in two or three days time. Mm. That's where my head was at. And I remember them checking me in and we got upstairs. And again, they search your bag. because, And I think this is a really key part to explain what happens when you go in there. They searched my bag and I think I thought I was going on a girl's weekend. I had the hair straightener. I had my makeup. I had tweezers. And they started taking the hair straightener and the tweezers. And even then it didn't really hit me because I was like, oh, they must be taking it for everyone else. It's to protect everyone else. And they just took everything off me. They took laces off my runners. And I was sort of there for two or three days going around just in denial, going, I'm fine. Everyone else here is unwell, but I'm just here for a few days. And I remember when I checked in, everyone would start talking to me, the other patients. What are you here for? That was a big thing. What are you here for? And I was like, oh, I guess I'm, I don't know, postnatal depression, I guess. I don't know. So many of them were mums. And you could argue well, half the population are women and a lot of them are mums. Too many of them were mums. And they were all saying, I don't really know why I'm here. Mm. So this is the thing that I learned about psychiatric hospitals. Before I went in, I thought you're there and you're getting these treatments and you're sitting in therapy sessions. That wasn't my experience. You are there, unless you have a diagnosed mental illness and maybe they need to amend your meds, you are there to get assessed. What brought you in here? So all of these people who were like, I don't know why I'm here. Mm. They were trying to figure out why they were there. They were getting assessed by an, a multidisciplinary team. So a psychiatrist. So I had a so, consultant psychiatrist, um, a psychologist, all these different people figuring out what led this woman here. And that's the thing. We weren't all locked up. There was all different levels. There was a place where some people were, I suppose, not allowed out of their rooms. They needed additional care. And then there was us. We all walked around freely. So you could leave if you signed yourself out and you could come back an hour later if your consultant gave you approval, which is key. So I was there for maybe three days, two or three days in denial. And I remember on the second or third day, I just collapsed on, collapsed on the floor, bawling, crying. And it just, it's like it was all being suppressed and it was a crying I can't even describe. It just physically pulled me to the floor and it was just, what is happening? And a nurse came in and she didn't say anything. She just sat with me and I, and held my hand. And she eventually said, you're in hospital, Laura. You have to talk to us. It's okay. And I was just like, I don't know what to say to you though, because I don't know what's going on. All that happened was I had a baby. How am I in like a psychiatric hospital? How did this happen? And it was just, I was in utter shock, but I was slowly coming around to, I'm in a hospital, like you're in a psychiatric hospital. So then the next day I met with the disciplinary team and I walked into a room and it was the most intimidating thing. There was about six of them in a semicircle and you sit in the middle. 
I don't know why they do it that way. And I was met by my consultant psychiatrist. So this is the first time I met her. Remember, I still thought I'm going to be here for a day or two. I'm just cheating the system. And I walked in and she was like, look, we, we just want to understand what's happening. And typically that takes maybe, you know, two to three months. And I was like, sorry, two to three months. Like I'm just here for a few days. And she's like, I'm sorry, Laura, we need to figure out what's going on with you. We really need to keep you here to understand what brought you here so that we can make you feel better. And I was just like, but you said I could go. And she was like, well, you kind of can, but also you kind of can't, right? And this is where I suddenly realized I can't leave. I'm here. So what was that moment like for you? I was shocked, Claudia, because like I used to listen to podcasts like this or when you hear someone's story and you think, oh, yeah, well, like they're saying the words. But you have to imagine if this was your life, when you became a mom, Claudia, and you suddenly ended up in a psychiatric hospital where they're like, we don't know why you're here and you need to stay here. And you're thinking, but no, no, all that, I just had a baby. I was told it would be the best time of my life. Like you have to imagine you yourself sitting in that situation. You can't even comprehend it because I wasn't someone with a diagnosed mental illness. You know, I was someone who lived a relatively happy life. Mm. And suddenly I'm in an institution where... I'm not allowed to go anywhere unless my husband signs me out. Um, at this stage, I wasn't even allowed to go downstairs to the coffee shop because I hadn't been given that privilege yet because they needed to understand how much of a risk I was. And I just had no, I was literally like, I just, I just want to get better. I don't need to be here. I didn't accept that I needed to be there, mm. but I was there. So you're sitting there in front of this, you know, room of people looking at you and deciding you know, how long you were going to stay here and saying, well, you can kind of leave, but you kind of can't. Yeah. In that moment, you know, were you thinking I'm out of here? No. And this is the thing. And this has taken me a long time to say, I didn't want to go home, Clodagh. Because it was too hard. So, and that has taken me a long time. And as a mum, like I think anyone to feel that but as a mum like your gut is to care for and to like be there and like I literally couldn't do it I found it so hard I couldn't do it and at the time I thought I was the worst person in the world and you're the worst mother for feeling this and how could you not want to be at home with your child but me being completely raw and honest today I couldn't have done it with him because I was that unwell, that part of me was like, well, I don't want to be here, but I definitely don't want to be at home. So I just surrender to this. And I kind of was so fixated on sleep. I was like, at least I can sleep here. They're going to give me sleeping tablets. And at the time I was watching Mad Men, like it's the funny, the things you remember. And I worked in marketing. So I had kind of gone into this little imaginary world where I was just in bed watching Netflix and the challenge in, in a psychiatric hospital, if anyone has been there, is they don't want you in bed. They're like, come on, get up. Come on, Laura, let's get up. Like the day is full of trying to get you up. And 
in that in those weeks my two best friends visited me because I remember at the time even playing it down going listen girls like this sounds really bad but it's not as bad as you think you know I was trying to play it down and they were like sorry now we have to come up and see this for our own eyes I remember showing them around this hospital and I'm very aware I'm talking about a private facility here I was like you do the yoga here and the pottery and I was almost selling it like a yoga retreat and they got me these mindful coloring books and pencils pencil sharpeners and when I got up to the ward, I went to the nurses, oh, and here's my sharpeners. And my friends were like, why are you giving them away? And I'm like, I'm not allowed to have them. I went into this child mode. I couldn't shower without telling them. They kept my razors. So I became completely cared for. And there was something really nice about Ecloda because what was I screaming for for the last 10 months? Yeah. They were taking care of me. They were giving me food. They were asking me how I was. So I went into this world for two months and it was every day why am I here why am I here and they were trying different medication and it wasn't working and they basically concluded this isn't chemical this isn't postnatal depression we really don't know what this is but we know it's psychological so this is the key about a psychiatric hospital that people don't understand you don't leave healed you don't get discharged saying you're better now it's basically We've assessed you. We don't really know what's going on. We think it's psychological. Here are some psychologists and therapists we we would recommend. And we've this group program. Now, this was July, June, July. We've availability in March. So I was basically discharged and I didn't want to leave. So you can think of that as a mother, how that feels. I didn't want to leave there. It was my safe place. I had friends. I had a routine. And the day... My husband picked me up. I had made a friend in there and she was like at reception with me. And I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to go. And she's like, you have to walk out this door and never come back again because they're not going to help you. So that's really where my healing started. I didn't heal in there. They had probably put me back together enough for me to start the journey, but I was still really unwell. And I was heading home, not wanting to go home, which is really hard. So walking out that door that day. I didn't want to go, Claudia. And that's what people, if there's other mums listening, they might be like, how? I didn't want to go because I was that unwell and I was still unwell on that day. Just a bit more rested, mm-hmm. if you can imagine that. Just, I'd had, I had, I had an experience where I was like a 10-year-old again for two months. So what was it like then walking out the doors when you didn't want to, but you had to? It took a while to readjust back into the world. Um, we went for lunch again. It was like to the outside world, nobody would have had any idea. I remember the day before I went, I went shopping to Liffey Valley because again, I was allowed to go and bought a new outfit. Like it was the most bizarre experience. And so the day before release or discharge. Yeah, I went, went I went shopping with one of my friends from there. So this is the thing, depending on where you are, you can come and go. This is what a lot of people don't understand once you sign yourself out. So at the start, you obviously can't. They kind of assess your risk. And once you're deemed not a risk to yourself or others, you can sign yourself out. There was some people, and actually this is the key, there was mums there and they would go home on a Thursday night and come back on a Sunday night. And their kids had no idea they were there. They were constantly coming and going and they might've been there for two or three months and then went home for six months and came back again. So I think that's really interesting that the people in there are at all different levels, just like any hospital, and they require different care. So there was points where I would go shopping with my new friends 
And I remember one of the guys was with us one day and I said, again, this was a moment of you're in a hospital. I was like, I get really paranoid about this. And he was having psychotic episodes. He was like, do you have, do you get them too? And I was like, no, but I'd really love to know what that feels like. So it was such a humbling experience. Um, so yeah, I left and that was where I started my journey to recovery, uh, with no support plan in place, really. While you were there for those two months, did you get to connect with Leo? Was he a part of that journey yeah. for you? Yeah. So that's really key. Um, I did see Leo. So he was allowed to come into the hospital and they had a family room. And again, remember there was times where I was allowed to go home for a night. So I still saw Leo and there was times I would go home for two nights, you know, uh, and be with him. So it's not like we were separated for two months. But when I went home, I wasn't really the one in charge. Does that make sense? Like I wasn't the mum. It's like my husband and my mum were there and they were kind of taking care of the two of us. Mm. So I saw him and that was like, I can't, it was just the most weird situation because I'm supposed to be the mum. I'm supposed to be taking care of him. But yet I'm there and it's like he's my sibling. Does that make sense in any way? Because... I just wasn't able to take that responsibility at the time. I was just so drained, so drained from it. And seeing him in those moments, what was it like saying hi to him, holding him? Like the only way I can describe it is just guilt. Like, it's not like it was a painful moment. It was just, this doesn't make sense. Like, it was like, the reason I can't put words on it, it was so surreal, Claudia. Like I'm in this institution and your baby is coming in to meet you. When 10 months ago, I was at the peak of my marketing career having fun and like my life has just blown apart and it's this big, dark secret. Nobody knew about it, right? My, my work knew about it, um, my immediate family and a few close friends. So it was this big, dark secret and it was like, we can never tell anyone this and we can never tell Leo this. That's why sharing this today is so hard. It's such a stigma of if, if I was in hospital because I had got cancer, we wouldn't even be questioning if I talk about this. But yet I did nothing wrong to end up in there. But there's still, and it's taken me years to get to a place where I'm comfortable now that I did nothing wrong. But the guilt, it's this is not what it was supposed to be. Why can't I care for him? Why can't I function? Why can't I do this right? Why am I feeling like this? Sounds like you felt like a failure in that moment. Oh, com- oh completely, Cloda. And and for years I did. For years it was like, I can't do this. I'm not good enough. I shouldn't have become a mum. I shouldn't have, I, I didn't deserve any of this because I'm just too selfish. Like there was so many thoughts, Cloda. So many. You said there, me being there was this deep, deep dark secret. Yeah. Whose idea was it not to to share that you were in there? Yeah, that's a good question. Like it was never a conversation. Like it wasn't a conversation of we're not going to tell anyone. It was just, you just don't tell anyone you're in a psychiatric hospital. You just don't, is it an Irish thing? You just don't tell anyone you're having a mental health struggle. You definitely don't as a mum because what are they going to do to my child? Like, so it's not like there was ever a conversation of let's not tell anyone. But at the same time, nobody knew where I was. My work knew, I'd say a couple of my friends. There's probably people that know me who are hearing this for the first time now. And my mom and dad and sister. But 
it was just sort of an unspoken. You don't tell anyone you go to a psychiatric hospital. You don't tell anyone you're struggling with your mental health. So you were in this place where you were leaving. You were leaving the safety that you had been for two months and you were going back home. Yep. Going back to Leo, going back to real life, I suppose. Yep. So what was that transition like for you? Horrible. It was nearly the, like, obviously that year in advance of that was horrendous. But that was harder because nobody knew what was going on. But I was so unwell. And even my husband didn't go back to work straight away. He took another bit of time off because I couldn't function. And we had to make some brave decisions. And we left Dublin. So we had lived here. Our life was here. We moved, We had to move back to my hometown because I couldn't get through a day on my own. And my husband, I suppose, needed to get back to his work and his career. So we needed to move home. It's not what I wanted. And I always talk about the difference between needing and wanting. It's what I needed. So we left Dublin, returned to my hometown, which I absolutely love, but I had spent my life trying to get out of there. And I did. I left at 18. I went to college. I traveled the world. I built a massive successful career, massive successful career, a good career in marketing. And suddenly I was back in this town that I spent my life trying to get out of. My husband was still commuting up and down to Dublin. And I was in a place where I couldn't get through the day without mommy and daddy. I had become a teenager again. And I just, I was in deep therapy at the time. So the recommendation was therapy. I was meeting with a psychologist once a week over and over again. And this went on for years. And I just, I could, I still couldn't find my way out of it. Even though we were talking and talking and talking, I was still going, why? I still don't know why I ended up there. Nobody could give me my why. And here's the part of it. So I had made a really hard decision to have a sibling for Leo. So even though I was terrified this would happen again, even though I wasn't feeling fully right, I was like, I have to give him a sibling. I love him and I want him to have a sibling. And if that means I go back to hospital, we'll do it. We'll overcome it. It'll be fine. And where, I had, Where was that um, coming from? Again, I don't know. I think it was coming from, I have one sibling and I always wanted more. And I thought I have to give him that. Mm. I have to give him that. And again, I suppose society, you don't just have one child. It's a pressure that we put on the pressure. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, when are you having your second? And, and when you look mm. back at it now, I was here clearly unwell, clearly not ready to have one, but it's like, oh, it's ticking. He's two now. He's two and a half. Like you got to get going. And would people ask you that? Well, people did, but remember, no one had any clue what was going on, Cloda. That's why I'm asking. Nobody, except my close friends, and even them, they probably thought she's moved on from it now. That was a year and a half ago. Mm. So people would say, are you going to have another one? Mm. And I had two miscarriages. And so you imagine all of this going on. And then I have two miscarriages. And of course, as a woman, I'm like, well, that's obviously punishment. Even though logically I know it wasn't, you didn't do it right the first time. You're bad mom, so you're not going to get another baby. So I had to navigate miscarriage then on top of it. And this is the defining moment. I'd had my second miscarriage. I had been doing everything they're telling me. I was going to therapy. I was doing everything right. I hadn't worked now in about two and a half years. And it was this moment where anger, I think it was about four o'clock on a Tuesday. It was just a random day and anger took over. And it was just this moment of, this is not your life, Laura. This is not you. This isn't like you are not living another year like this. Like you're just 
you're not living. It was almost this moment of like you're on a chessboard and you haven't made a move in two and a half years. You're not living. And I was searching for the perfect move, the right move to have all the information. And it was like, no, Laura, you're going to make any move here. However small, you're just going to start moving because you are not, this is not your life. And it wasn't, it was just a rage of no, like I'm going to figure this out and you are just going to make a move. And on that same day, I got my CV together. I applied for a really junior marketing role part-time and I got it. And I started that job four weeks later. Didn't tell them, was terrified of telling them where had I been for two and a half years? I made something up um, because you can't tell them because who'd hire you if you had been in a psychiatric hospital, right? The stigma again. Went into that job and slowly I just started making all these tiny steps. I stopped becoming fixated with looking for my why. I stopped figuring out, like trying to find the right step and I just kept going and I got pregnant again. And this little baby stuck and it was baby Alex and he was born about six weeks before COVID and that job had been a contract, right? So he was born six weeks before COVID. I had worked with my psychologist. We were prepped for baby number two. Like we had it down and then COVID hit. And I remember sitting in the car, but, and I, I'm not a crier, even though I'm crying today, I generally wouldn't cry in therapy. And I was on the phone to her and I was like, how in the name of Jesus, what's going on? What is this COVID thing? We didn't plan for this. And she was just like, at that stage, she was almost surrendering, going, you're going to end up back in hospital. Not that she said that, or, but I just knew that's what she was thinking. That's what I was thinking. Was that the worry? That was the worry. I was like, no, Laura, you've prepped, but like nobody foreseen, could have foreseen this pandemic where your village, i.e. creche, my parents are gone. My husband has to continue working. I'm now alone with a newborn baby and a three and a half year old all day long. And again, rage just took over, Cloda. And I'm not saying mental health is a choice. There's part of it we can't choose. I was like, no way, not happening again. I am not doing that again. And I was like, you are going to do something. Again, started applying for marketing jobs. Everyone was like, no, 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 wouldn't even interview me. Um, and I just thought, oh, life coaching. That's a bit interesting because I had always wanted to be a psychologist. Remember I said I was studying for my master's in psychology and obviously I never got to finish it because I was unwell. And I'd looked into that and I was like, look, that's going to take years. What's this life coaching business about? Maybe I'll just study that and it might just get my brain going again. Maybe by doing that, I'll figure something out. So I did. I signed up for that and it was a lot of money at the time to me. I wasn't working. And as I was doing that, I was like, hmm, because I, I didn't, I left out a part of this. Like when I was in that day, when I was bawling, crying in hospital, I remember I was like, I fell to the floor. In that moment, I promised, I literally made a promise to myself. I was like, if I ever figure out what's going on with me, and if I ever get out of here, I'm going to help other women because I don't want any woman, especially a mom, to ever feel like me and end up in here because I didn't need to be there. I still believe I didn't need to be there. So I started doing the life coaching course and I was like, hmm, I wonder if I could start using this to help other moms. And everyone was like, no, like, why would you do that? Why would like, there's no such thing as a life coach for moms. Like you have to be in the corporate space. And, and I was like, no, I think, I think I'll do this. I think I'll do this. And everyone was like, no. So again, not trying to find the perfect step. I was like, I'm going to set up a business. The week I decided to do that, I found out I was pregnant with my third baby. Complete surprise, baby Anna. And it was this moment of, oh no, it's happening again. Like I thought this was my way out. I thought, and like, I mean that in, 
I love my baby girl, but I have to be honest, like for anyone who's experienced an unplanned pregnancy, a surprise pregnancy, it's okay to go, sugar, this is not what I planned. How do I navigate this? How do, like you can have a range of feelings. And I had them in that moment and I wouldn't trade her because she's my special little girl. So I was like, again, no, you're going to do it. You're going to work your bum off through pregnancy. And I started with setting up an Instagram page and like anyone who's started a business, they'll know you get your friends to follow you and they're your friends' friends. And then you're kind of like, right, we're at capacity here. These are just all people who know people. And I was like, what will I call this? What did I need at the time? I needed someone to mind me. I'm going to call it Mind Mommy. I'm going to call it Mind Mommy Coaching. And I set up a page and suddenly the women started coming and I didn't even know what I was doing. I had no strategic plan. I had no, I was just like, just keep going. You're pregnant. We'll give this a go. Sounds like you were doing it from the heart. And yeah. And the women just started coming and I was like, I'll just start sharing. And at the time I wasn't sharing my real journey. I was just talking about the struggles of motherhood and how we could navigate them. And mums, not just pregnant women, not just new mums, mums of teenagers were coming to me. So then I was like, I think I'll take my first client. I'm going to be a real life coach. I was so scared to do it. And they just started coming to the point where prior to having my baby, I was booked out. And I was like, why are these women coming to me? And so I had had Anna and I kind of pretty much didn't take Matt leave. And fast forward, here we are 18 months later and I'm literally get the privilege of talking to mums every day. And that's the key thing. Just to kind of finish on this, the bond. I always get asked, what was your bond like with Leo? Like, is not is that your bond not broken? And oh, like, I used to say, oh, it was delayed bonding. It was never delayed. Like we bonded from the moment I was pregnant with him. It just looked different to what we're told a bond is. Like, I didn't do anything wrong. It's just my experience did not match the false narrative that's out there, that it's all rosy and it's all this. And if anything, we had the strongest bond that any mommy and baby could have, because even when I was at my lowest and he was at his lowest, we were there together. And I did not stop shouting for help for him to the point where I neglected my needs. And that's part of what I do with Mind Mommy Coaching. It's we have to start prioritizing our needs, like taking a shower and going to the supermarket is not your needs. It's about the relationship with yourself and giving yourself permission as a mom to go. I have needs too. It's okay to meet them because I promise you, whoever's listening, I tried it the other way. It did not end up well for me. If you could say one thing to that Laura back then who was screaming out for help and felt so alone, what would you say to her? You're not alone. This is actually a complete normal experience of motherhood. It's just not something that anyone talks about. You're not alone. Think long term. This is really hard now, but you have to choose life, Laura. You have to choose life and not give in to that thought of this is too hard. Because there's a time in the future where you will sit on a podcast and share this story and you will get to help women every day that felt like you felt and you will realize you were never alone, that what you were experiencing was motherhood and the perception in my head was false. It was it was a myth. It doesn't exist. Well, thank you so much for speaking your unspoken because that is exactly what you're doing. You're dispelling that myth that everything is rosy. Yeah. Because, it, you know, I've had two little girls and 
yes, there were beautiful moments, but there there were also really dark moments where I struggled. Yeah. And I imagine every single mother listening can relate to those dark days too. So thank you so much. Laura so very bravely shared her unspoken with us today. And as we spoke about during our conversation, mental illness and mental health in patient care is such a huge unspoken due to the shame and stigma that sadly still surrounds these topics. One of my biggest goals with having conversations such as today's is to dispel and challenge this stigma. But what do we do if this stigma and shame is within us? This is something I work on with my clients every single day. Because sadly, shame is an emotion that so many of us carry that is so hard to release. So let's look at how we can change that. To begin, I would encourage you to start paying attention to how you speak to yourself. Are you kind, compassionate and caring towards yourself? Or do you judge yourself harshly? Are you your biggest cheerleader? Or do you run yourself into the ground? One of the biggest things we can do to heal from shame is to build awareness to our internal dialogue and to then start challenging that inner critic who can be so callous and judgmental. So how do we start challenging them? We simply catch what they are saying and then consider a kinder, less judgmental alternative. For example, next time your inner critic shows up and you catch yourself saying, why am I finding this so hard? What is wrong with me? Pause and consider for a moment how you are feeling. The stressors that are present for you. Perhaps it's actually normal that you're feeling this way. Perhaps life is feeling hard for a reason, that you're carrying a load that feels really heavy. So instead of criticising yourself, instead of saying there's something wrong with you, perhaps it's that alternative of maybe this is normal that I'm struggling right now. Maybe other people would struggle in my shoes. So what kinder alternative, what more compassionate response can you offer yourself in these moments when your inner critic comes out in force? Another really powerful step towards releasing shame is to forgive yourself. Forgive yourself for finding things hard. Forgive yourself for something you may have said or done. Forgive yourself for struggling. We all struggle. We all carry things that sometimes we regret, that sometimes we carry shame and guilt over. It's about working towards that forgiveness by being kinder, being more compassionate towards ourselves. If you can work towards that, I promise you it will be a really powerful shift. When it comes to shame, Another incredible strategy to help you work towards healing is speaking your truth to whomever that may be, whether your partner, your friends, your family, or whether to a mental health professional. This is something that was a changing point in my life for me, and I can promise you that it will be the same for you. So find that safe environment, find that person who it feels safe to speak to. When I spoke my truth, When I shared my journey, my shame dissipated. So perhaps speaking your truth will do the same for you. Finally, when it comes to shame and guilt or whatever emotions it is that you are trying to shift, please be patient with yourself. The process of letting go of shame and guilt can take time. So be patient with yourself and don't expect an emotion you have been carrying for God knows how long 
to disappear overnight. It will move and shift when you are ready to let it go. When the time is right, then that's when the magic will happen. So between now and then, consider all of the above strategies I've spoken about. Consider perhaps too putting pen to paper and writing whatever comes. Let it go, release it, move through that emotion and then the shift will come. I wish you the best of luck with it. I myself have let go of shame and guilt and so many other emotions. So I promise you that this too can happen for you. Thank you so much for listening to Unspoken with me, Dr. Clodagh Campbell, the wellness psychologist. Be sure to like, subscribe and follow me at The Wellness Psychologist on Instagram if you'd like to hear more. If you identified with this topic, make sure to check out the show notes where I've listed related resources for you. I hope you find them beneficial. 